John chapter 17. John 17. We are continuing our series on the last night of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've reached verse 6. And it says, I have declared your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. I'd like us this morning to focus on those words. I have declared your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Nearly 50 times in this prayer, the Lord Jesus repeats a word or an idea. In fact, when I had begun studying this, and in my past studying of this prayer, I noticed the word give, which is found 17 times. I noticed the word glory, which is found eight times. I noticed the word world, which is found 18 times. But there is actually another idea that is repeated more than any other. The men, the people, the ones, those ones, them, they. There's this group that is mentioned over and over nearly 50 times. It's found here in verse 6. I have declared your name to what group? You tell me, what group? The men you gave me. So this morning, I would like to discuss what's happening with these people, these men that were given. I would draw your attention, first of all, to the fact that they are men. The ESV translates it, the people. But the word is the men. I need to make that point, not merely to draw our attention to technicalities, but our world despises male headship. They call it toxic masculinity. We make our schools more fit for girls than for boys. We praise boys when they don't act in boyish ways, when they act more like girls. We have a lot of talk about gender-based violence, but it's always what's happening to women, even though overwhelmingly, as I mentioned the other week, about eight times more men are murdered than women, but we have a whole month of violence against women. What about the violence against men? We talk a lot about how we need to empower women and take a girl child to work, but women are going to university more than men. Women are passing matric more than men. So there needs to be, in order to, off, in, in order to balance what our world has foolishly and unbiblically done in an attack on male headship, we need to balance the fact that the Bible consistently speaks about men. Now, yes, I agree that the idea behind the ESV's translation is correct. The ESV says, I have declared your name to the people that you have given me. Yes, when it says men, it's speaking about all people, including women. But notice that there is a word for people in Greek, but God inspired through the Holy Spirit the word men to once again cement in our minds there is an order in the world And our world's current fascination with pushing men down is simply one more demonstration that they despise the way God has made the world. These people, look in verse number six, they're not only men or referred to under the title of male headship, but secondly, they are gods. Notice verse six, I've manifested your name To the men you gave me. You gave me. They come from the Father and they're given to the Son. 
In fact, only in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 5 are there no references to these men. I have multiple colors of pens, and I've circled these different words in different colors. The men, if you'll circle those, you'll find them in verse 2 and 3. Skip verses 4 and 5. And then 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Every verse down to verse 26. Why? Because John is the apostle of love. He speaks about love far more than any other writer in the Bible. John wants us to think about real love. So John records this prayer. Matthew doesn't, Mark doesn't, and Luke doesn't. Remarkably, many of the times that John records the word love, the words are coming straight from the lips of Jesus. Not not John as the editor, but right from Jesus Christ himself. And that means that we would not have known what love is. We would not understand what love is if we did not have John's writings. What books did the Apostle John write? Do you know them? The Gospel of John and then what? First John and then second John and then third John. And what's the last book that the Apostle John wrote? Revelation. Five books. Meaning the Apostle John wrote more words than the Apostle Paul. In those five books, interestingly, if you search for love in the Bible, and then on my computer, as I've mentioned before, I can click graph, and I can see every book in the Bible laid out on how many times they use the word love. And there's a little bar for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... But when you get the whole way down your Bible to the book of John, it jumps out. And when you get to 1 John, it jumps out even farther. Because love is discussed by the Apostle John in the Gospel and his first letter more than anywhere else in the Bible. He is the Apostle of love. And he wants to tell us about love. You'll find love even in this chapter. Look at John chapter 17. Verse number 23, do you see the word love there two times? John 17, verse 23, do you see love? Where's the next time you find love? After verse 23. Verse 24, where after verse 24? 26. It's in verse 26. Now, you can circle those if you like. It's found five times in John 17. But here's the point. John loves to talk about love, but in John 17, he only uses the word love five times at the very end of the prayer. But if you have eyes to see, you will see love all the way through it because where was Jesus when he's praying this prayer? He was in the garden sweating drops of blood. And he doesn't think about himself after the first prayer of Father glorify me. Then he moves on almost exclusively to this group of people. Our Lord Jesus, when faced with torture, death, and the separation of himself from his father, thinks about you, thinks about sinners, thinks about his sheep, thinks about others. All the way through John 17, he thinks about other people. So today I want to preach to you on love, the love of Christ. I want to explain to you three points this morning. First of all, who are these men that were given? Secondly, how does Jesus think about them? 
Thirdly, when does Jesus talk about them? Did you follow that? Three simple things coming from verse 6 and really the whole chapter. Who are these men? Let's start with that first of all. Who are these men? It says in verse 6, I have declared your name unto who? The men or the people. The ones that you gave me. Who are these people? You'll remember from Luke chapter 22, they were people that had fallen asleep twice already on Jesus. They were people who could not sympathize with him. They were people who couldn't help him in his hardest time. Do you love people who don't love you? Do you love people when you're hurting who are too busy? Imagine you're in a car accident. And you were with your friend. And in the car accident, it just so happened that you were thrown out of the car and you fell and and you are badly injured. And you're in great pain on the side of the road. And your friend comes out of the car and he's just got a few scrapes. He comes over and says, wow, are you okay? And you say, oh, I'm in pain. And you tilt your head to look at him and he's on his phone. He says, oh, I'm in great pain. He says, just a minute, I'm just updating my status. That's what happened with Jesus. He's the one who's going to bear the sins of the world. And they're sleeping. And he goes back, leaving them asleep, and prays this prayer. Having left them asleep, he says, now let me take time to think about them. Would you have done that? Isn't that love? Who are these people? They were the ones who had doubted him and contradicted him that same night. Remember, it's maybe two or three in the morning now. He's praying to the Father. But what had happened about six hours earlier at nine o'clock at night when they were back in the room? Jesus washes their feet. Peter sees that he's washing. And the way it would have been set the night, that night is Jesus would have been at the head of the table. John, his beloved disciple, was to his right. Peter was just near to him because Peter has to talk to John and whisper to John. So the washing of the feet has to go the whole way around, starting with Judas, and going the whole way around just to get to Peter. Peter sees what Jesus is doing, and when it gets to Peter, Peter contradicts him and says, you're not washing my feet. You contradict the Lord after you see what his plan is. You can see this is the way he wants to do it. He's done 10 of them already. You're number 11. No, 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 no. Those guys, maybe, not with me. I'm too spiritual for you to come to me. So Jesus corrects him, and Peter contradicts him a second time. Okay, fine, wash my feet, and also all of me. No, Peter, you don't get this. I'm the Lord, you're the servant. A few hours later, Philip comes to him and says, Oh, just show us the Father, it's enough for us, Jesus. Philip, can't you understand I've been showing you the Father. Look at me. Again, he doesn't understand. Later on, while they're walking to the garden, they fight. They're walking behind him. He's teaching them, talking. And as he talks and teaches them, they slowly drift behind him and say, you know what? When he gets a kingdom, I think I'm going to be better than you. You better than me? What are you talking about? I'm the best. Did you hear how I preached? Did you see the miracles I did? Miracles? I raised people from the dead. Okay, fine, you raised one from the dead, but I healed three sick guys. Healing three sick is equal to one dead guy. They're fighting like this, walking to the garden after they just saw Jesus washing their feet. That's the ones that Jesus prays for at the hour of his need. Who are these people? They're people that Jesus predicted. A few hours earlier, he predicted, all of you are going to leave me. And they deny it. They contradict him. No, no, we won't leave you. How many times must they contradict their Lord and must he be proven to be correct before they will be humble and accept it? 
And Jesus knows, because he knows all, he knows in one more hour, Judas is going to arrive, they're all going to leave me, and Peter is going to curse at them, curse at them on behalf of me, and say, I never knew him. Jesus knows all these things, but then at the last moments before he's taken, who does he think about? 49 times he thinks about those people. Is that not love? But we're not done because who were these people? Remember, that's our first point. What's the first point? Who were these people? Who were these people? Think a little more carefully. There was Simon the Zealot. What's a zealot? It's a political revolutionary. He's the guy who's saving up guns in his in his house, hiding them away. Every time you get to talk to me, he says, hey, hey, Stephen, have you done your firearms training? We've got to overthrow this government. Ah, you see this government, it's wicked. But uh, if we get enough guys, we can do it. No, man, no, Simon, calm down, calm down. Hey, look, uh, relax, man. I don't like the Romans either, but come on, I don't want to kill people. What are you talking about, man? Come on, let's do this. Every time you're with him, he's talking this way. That's one of the disciples. Another one's the pessimist, doubting Thomas. Everything you say, he says, probably not. Every time you say, well, whoo, today's a beautiful day. Ah, it's going to rain tonight. Every time you say something, I, I don't think so. Ah, you guys are open too much. How do you like being around a guy like that? That's doubting Thomas. Then who else do we have? We have the guy who can't stop talking. Peter, every time you see him, just talk, 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 please. So can you imagine the times that other disciples are saying, man, quit it. And that's their leader. Every time the disciples are listed, it's Peter who's the first one. And his mouth gets him in trouble so often that Jesus actually calls him Satan. Can you imagine being with a group like this? But we're not done. Two of the guys... James and John, those are the other two leaders of the group. They have such little discernment that after they've been with Jesus for almost three years, they find some guys who won't listen to their preaching. And instead of saying, freedom of religion, if you don't want it, you don't have to take it. We'll go preach to someone else. Instead, they say, they didn't listen to us. Can we like do miracles and send fire on them? Man, if we just burned those guys up, imagine how the others would become Christians. That's the problem. Let's just send some fire in these guys. Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. I didn't come to burn people up. I came to send out missionaries to the end of the world who would have their heads cut off and their arms cut off, who'd be thrown in prison, who would lose their money, who'd be shot and beaten, and their kids would lose things for my sake. And that's how I came to bring the gospel. You guys want to burn these people up? That's Luke chapter 9. You don't know what you're talking about. But that's not all. Who are these people? One of them's a devil. A money-grubbing trickster. I imagine Judas is kind of oily. He's the kind of guy that maybe from a distance you think, oh, okay, yeah, he's good. But as soon as you get to know him, He's tricky. He always does things so he gets the benefit. He's competitive and slippery and sneaky. He reveals just enough to try to get something good for himself, but he's always holding his cards close so that anytime he can get a benefit, he can get it. We know that because in John 12, he tries to get more money out of the bag and he uses words about trying to help the poor just so he can have a little corruption and steal some money. He talks good. He talks a lot because none of the disciples knew he was the bad one. These are the people that Jesus chose to be with. They're not the kind of friends. They're not the kind of friends that the king of the universe should choose. But he chose to be with them. This is love. If it were you or I, we would say, okay, I came to earth and I loved these sinners, 
but now it's the night before I die. I'm going to pray about who? Me. Jesus says it's the night before I die. Let me think about the trickster. Let me think about the guy who talks too much. Let me think about the pessimist. Let me think about the political revolutionary. Let me think about these people who contradict me. Oh, I forgot the tax collector. Yeah, what about the tax collector? The Jew who says, yeah, for the right price, I'll sell out my ethnic heritage. Jesus loved the unlovable. So when it says in John 17, 6, I have declared your name to the ones you gave me, imagine who it is he's talking about. And brothers and sisters, now let me bring the application home. Are you any better? You with all of your pride? Because as I read that list, you thought, phew, I'm not like Simon. I'm not the guy stockpiling guns in my house. I'm not the pessimist. Who could be like Thomas? Sure, who could live with that guy? He's always complaining, complaining. It won't work. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to send you out two by two. That's going to fail. And then when Jesus says, they're going to kill me, on the, and on the third day I'll rise again, they're going to kill you? That's what they're going to do. Rise again. I'll believe it when I see it. When I gave that list, you're probably thinking, that's not me. I'm not the guy who can't talk too much. I'm not the guy who's always contradicting. I'm not the devil, the trickster, the money grubber. I'm not the tax collector. But the reality is, aren't we the lazy, the disinterested, the ones who, oh, I love God with all my heart, except it's a little too difficult to come out for the prayer meeting. Oh, I love God with all my heart, but don't ask me to support the missionary. I love God with all my heart, but well, actually, if I look at my chart from last month, oh, I didn't do the the Bible reading chart last month. What was I? Was I busy? Oh, I didn't get it from the church. Well, why not? Oh, I couldn't quite memorize the verses. Really? Ah, but you see, that's the kind of people that Jesus loves. Jesus loves people who don't deserve to be loved. It says in John 17, 6, I've declared your name to the ones you gave me. Who are these people? Unlovable people. Point number two. Christ loved them regardless. How does he feel about these people? How does he act toward these people? What does he do for these people? Well, let's just look at the passage. Let's run quickly through the passage here. Number one, I've got about 14 or 15 points here. 15 or so marks of the love that Christ has for them. Let's go through these. Number one, verse six. He speaks constantly and sympathetically about them. Do you realize that Christ thinks sympathetically and speaks constantly to and about his sheep, his people? That's verse six down to verse 26. All the times you see the word them or they or the men or the ones, Every time you see that in chapter 17, 49 times. Look, let's just see a few of them. Verse 6, the men. Again, verse 6, where's the next reference? They. Again, verse 6, them. Again, verse 6, they. Four times in verse 6. Verse 7, they. Verse 8, them. They. They. Verse 9, them. Them. They, perhaps your Bible says the ones who or the people or the men, but you get the idea. It's constant. He's always talking to the father on behalf of these people. Notice what he did. What's his first prayer request in John 17 verse one? What's his first prayer request? Glorify me. That's the first request. So his first request is focused on himself. But even then it says glorify me so that I may give eternal life to the ones whom you gave me. So even when he's self-centered, Christ is self-centered out of love for you. How can that be? He's the only one who can think about himself out of love for others. And he does it. The whole thing is love. 
So number one, he speaks constantly and sympathetically about his people. Number two, in verse six, he accepts common people because of the Father's will. Do you see that in verse six? I've declared your name to the ones whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Jesus, Jesus followed his Father's will. His father chooses sinners. His father chooses the ugly. His father chooses the backward and the fat and the old. And the, he chooses all those people. You say, we want to choose the beautiful, handsome movie stars. Have you ever watched TV and seen an ugly or a bald or a stuttering person on the news? They'll never put someone who's not beautiful to the eye on the news. Because they know when people watch, they want to watch something beautiful. Jesus says, when I come to save, I save ugly people. I save short and tall. I save skinny and fat. I save sick and ill. I save the ones who can't walk well. I save the people who aren't even good at sports. Amen. Come on, my family. Jesus has such love. He accepts the common people. Didn't he say that in Luke chapter 4, quoting from Isaiah? He says, I came to save the poor, the captive. I came to preach the gospel to those who are neglected. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 down to verse 27, he says, not many of the great ones are chosen. Not many of the presidents and the cabinet members are called. But I call Foolish of the world, the ones the world steps on, the ones the world passes over, those are the people I came to save. I came to save poor people. Number three, verse number six and seven. Thinking the best that can be thought about someone is love. Look at verse six and seven. They were yours. You gave them to me. What's the last part of verse six? Look, look down there. What's the last part of verse six? What have these people done at the end of verse six? What's the last thing these people did? <laughs> look at verse seven. Now they have known. Oh, these people are keepers and these people are knowers. Do you see that in verse six and seven? What are the people doing in verse six? They keep. What do they do in verse seven? Now, wait just a minute. Think back over the disciples. I just told you. They denied Christ. They fall asleep. They contradict him. They call down fire from heaven when he says love the people. Do do you see? Brothers and sisters, you can choose to focus on the bad things people do. Or you can choose to love them. Do you see? When our Lord thinks of these people, he could say in verse 6, he could have said the end of verse 6, they were yours and you gave them to me. And even though they're falling asleep right now, I still pray that you would save them. He doesn't say that. That's what you would say. You would say, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they contradicted me tonight and really annoyed me. They rebuked me and fell asleep. They fought amongst themselves while I'm walking to my death. But, well, forget it anyway. I still love them. That's what you would have said, maybe, at your best. Jesus chooses not to mention any of their sins. He overlooks all of their sins and says, oh, those guys, they're the ones that obey my word. Really? He could have chosen to focus on all the things they were doing wrong. Let me ask you, as a point of application, is there another true Christian that you know that it is difficult for you to see any good in? Our Lord could have seen all the bad in Peter or James or John or Simon or Matthew. He could have. It was there. He could have looked at it. He didn't. When he went to, and you would think, is Jesus talking in public? He's talking in private. You think, well, it's just private here. It's only the son and the father. They both know everything anyway. So what's it going to hurt if Jesus says, 
well, Father, you know about their sins. He could have said that. If any time he could have mentioned their sins. But do you see? That's what love is. He refuses to focus on their sins unless there's a particularly good reason. And outside of a particularly good reason to look at their sins, he's going to say, these people, they're word keepers. They're obeyers. They're the ones who know me. They're the ones who know you. No, God, just six hours earlier, they're confused. And Philip says, well, just show us who God is. Philip, I've been showing you who God is for three years. Look at me. You're looking at God. Philip, I I guess that's true. Six hours later, oh God, thank you that they know me. Their knowledge of God was so poor, so weak, so childish. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ says, they keep my word. They know me. It's like your little four-year-old scribbling out something on a piece of paper and bringing it to you, and you call the Louvre in Paris, the famous art museum, and say, hey, I've got a piece you're going to want here. Years ago, Callie drew a picture for Carson. She was about four or five. She drew a picture for Carson. On the outside, there's a few scribbles. On the inside, it's blank. She folds the card over and says, this is my card for Carson. So we look at the outside. It's got the scribbles. I said, oh, nice, Callie. And she says, no, you have to see the inside. We open it. There's nothing inside. She says, that, that's a blank sheet to show how happy I am. Now, we laugh at that because she's a child. But do you see, that's the kind of good works that we give back to God. And God looks at it and he could say, Why are you doing that when you're 30? You know, we laugh because it was a four-year-old. But what would you say if a 35-year-old, it was Faith's birthday on Thursday at the prayer meeting. What if we had said, what if we come and say, Faith, here's our love to you. Here's a blank sheet of paper. Would, Would Faith have said, oh, the church loves me. They gave me blank sheets of paper to show their love and joy for me. She would say, what, what, what is this? Maybe for a two-year-old, but, but you're not two, are you? But our Lord overlooks it, and he loves us even though we give nothings to him. We give, we give nothings back to God, and he says, ah, I love you. And others look and say, yeah, but that one's been a Christian for 20 years. He should be giving you something better than that. And Jesus says, I think it's just, I, I still love them. What about you? You see, this point in verse 6 and 7, that our Lord thinks the best that can be thought, is similar to what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he calls the Corinthian believers holy ones. Do you know what happens in the book of 1 Corinthians? What is Paul doing in that book? He's correcting their errors. For 16 chapters, Paul is correcting their, actually 15 chapters, he's correcting their errors. The 16th chapter, he's summarizing what happens and and giving some encouragement and some directions. 15 chapters, Paul is saying, you guys are wicked. They had accepted fornication in their midst. They weren't doing church discipline. They were having political infighting inside the church. They were suing one another at court in the church. They had all kinds of problems about marriage and divorce. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. And how does Paul the Apostle open the letter to the Corinthians? What does he call them? Holy ones. Here's my point. It is love to overlook the sins of sinners. That's love. You could focus on it, but it is love to overlook it. Number four, look in verse eight. I have given to them the words which you gave me. Giving the word of God to someone is true love. Look in verse nine. What does he do in verse nine that shows love? I pray, I ask. That's love. But what else does he do in verse 9 that shows love? What do you see in verse 9? He distinguishes his people from who in verse 9? The world. 
The world is found 18 times in this passage. We're going to discuss it more tonight. But he separates his people from the world because of the time. Let me just deal with the third point of the sermon right now. Friends, Jesus is pouring out his love on his people. But where is he at when he's loving them? He's in private. When Jesus preaches in public, he commonly says this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross every day and follow me. And when people come to Jesus and say, oh, I'm a Christian. He says, really? Obey all the Ten Commandments. Well, I've obeyed all the Ten Commandments. Oh, really? Sell everything you have. Give it to missions. And then we'll talk. What? What? Sell like my money? Like my house? What? And he walks away. Friends, the third or fourth evidence that Jesus loves his people is that he distinguishes them from the world. There is a false doctrine today that says Jesus loves all men in the same way. He loves people in different ways. Do you see he's praying for who in verse 9? His people. Is he praying for the world in verse 9? Is it loving to pray for someone? Then is it not loving not to pray for someone? Jesus is specifically setting levels of love in verse 9. I love those people better than those people. There's a distinction there. And the false doctrine in our world is that God loves everyone in exactly the same way. And you will see it on TV if you listen to TV preachers. They'll commonly say things like this. All of you are God's children. Brothers and sisters, that's one of the greatest dangers in the 21st century. Do not lie to yourself. Do not trick yourself. Jesus only prays for his sheep, which means he's praying for some of you, but not for all. It doesn't matter if you're a church member. He prays for his true sheep. It doesn't matter if you sing in the choir. He prays for his true sheep. It doesn't matter if you say, well, I've gone to church. or I've given money. I've done this. I've always been in church. I sing in the worship team. It doesn't matter. He prays for his sheep. He neglects praying for the world. I saved this to be the third point of the sermon, which I'm just squeezing in here because I want to make sure we do not miss what A.W. Pink said is one of the greatest dangers in the Christian world. It's this, offering the love of God to all people indiscriminately, as if God does not discriminate. Friends, verse 9 is discrimination. It's theological, divine discrimination. Sheep. I pray for them. Goats, not for them. Now remember, there is time to love goats. There is time to pray for goats. God does, in one sense, love the world. God does uh, tell us to pray for all men to be saved, just like I did in the prayer this morning. There is a kind of love given to all men, but there is a kind of love reserved only for his sheep. If that offends you, then Jesus is offending you. Verse 9 explicitly says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for the ones whom you have given me. His his mark of love in verse 9 is that he prays for his sheep. And it is very important that each person look inside their soul and say, am I one of God's sheep? Because if I'm one of his sheep, then he loves me. He thinks sympathetically toward me. He overlooks my sin. He prays for me. But if I'm still a goat, then I need to devote myself, body and soul, all 168 hours of every week. I need to make sure that I'm not a goat. I need to make sure he's praying for me. And moms, you listen to me. You've got to make sure of that for your children. It needs to be your number one goal. I don't worry about anything except this. My children are sheep. Write them letters. Pray and fast for them. 
Fast every Tuesday lunch for the one child, every Wednesday lunch for the next, every Friday lunch for the next. Do something to say, I've got to be certain that my children are not churchgoers, but they're sheep. I've got to be certain that Christ prays for my children because he doesn't pray for all. He prays for some. Friends, that is the reason you need to be connected to a church like this. Because a church like this is going to make the distinction clear. The distinction that is clear in the mind of Jesus. In the mind of Jesus, there's the sheep and there's the goats. There's his people and there's the world. And he doesn't pray for one and he does pray for the other. And you need to have it as your goal that you will be in that group for whom he prays. It needs to consume your mind. In another church that I was preaching at, A man got angry at that church and actually said to me, I have a problem with the way you preach because you're too clear trying to separate sheep from goats. And he said this as well. You keep asking people to give their testimony. Brothers and sisters, if that offends you, then I'm going to be 10 times more offensive than that. You've got to have a testimony. Because if you don't have a testimony, you might be a goat lying and thinking you're a sheep. And I will not have your blood on my hands. If you're going to go to hell, you will go by your own. But I stand here saying, why go to hell when there's a savior who loves sheep? When there's a a doctor who opens the hospital and has beds for everyone? When there's a savior for sinners? When there's one who prays for all his people? And he has an infinite mind and he can include you. And he can remember you. And he can remember your kids and your grandkids to the third in the fourth generation, why would you say, oh, I'm, I'm offended at this, when there's a loving Savior for you? All you have to pay is humility. All you have to pay is just going down lower, 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 and looking up and saying, if you'll love me, I'll go low, and he'll take you. Look at verse number 11. Verse 11, now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, working and praying for the spiritual security and success of others is love. This is the whatever number one, sixth, fifth, seventh. Working and praying for the spiritual security and success of others is love. And again, moms and dads. I know that you love your children when you work and when you pray for their spiritual success. When you build your home and your whole life and the culture of your surname, when you build it around the spiritual success of your children. The other day I was trying to think if there's even one thing that we do in our family that is not influenced by our religion. And it was difficult for me to think of even one thing that we do in a week that is not influenced by religion. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, build your entire life around your religion for your children's sake. Because you love your children when you work and pray for their spiritual success like Jesus did in chapter 17, verse 11. He's about to die. No, I'm still working. I've got children to save. That's the way a mother talks. That was the way the mothers were in Ukraine famine in 1931 and 32 and 33. There are places found in Ukraine when Ukraine made it through the famine at the end when people came in from Western Europe to offer aid. They found places where mothers died holding out bowls of food to their children dying of starvation. Do you know how it takes months to die of starvation? And that means you have pain every single day. And the mothers die enduring that pain if by any moment they might save their child a moment longer. And some of them lived and they made a documentary about it. There's one woman on the documentary of this Ukraine famine who said, my mother died keeping me and my brother alive. 
You listen to that and tears come to your eyes. You think, wow, would I be able to do that? Would I be able to sacrifice my food to keep my children alive? And I tell you, if you wouldn't do that for your souls, then you're guilty of the sixth commandment. Do not kill. It's much worse to murder their souls than to murder their bodies. You love your little baby and would give anything for your child. Will you give them a Christian home and a Christian life and a Christian culture so they grow up knowing nothing but Christ? From start to finish, from morning to night, from, Saturday, from Sunday to Saturday. That's what our Lord does. And it's a mark of his love. In verse number 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them. Guarding others from sin is love. Verse 15. Again, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. But that you would keep them from the evil. No, let them stay in the world where they have strokes and heart attacks where they lose their jobs where petrol goes up to 21 or 22 or 40 let them stay in the world where they struggle and live in shacks let them stay in the world with aids and corrupt politicians let them stay in the world with criminals but keep them from sin in their own hearts when john wesley or perhaps it was matthew henry the story is told of both and i'm not sure who it was when john wesley or matthew henry was robbed he wrote later I thank God that though I was robbed, they did not take my life. I thank God that though I was robbed, they only took a little because it was all I had. I thank God that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Mark number, letter I, verse 13. Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Bringing true joy to others is love. Friends, are you a pleasing, joy-bringing person? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul the Apostle says, We are workers together for your joy. Do you know what I am? I'm a joy worker. I am working to make you happy. The real deep down bone deep happiness. That is my goal. And that's what you should be doing. That's what our Lord does. The night before he dies, he says, I just want to bring them joy. I think of them and only hope for their joy. And now for 2000 years, Peter's been dead, but more alive than ever. He's in heaven. And he says, oh, how I sinned. Oh, how I contradicted. Oh, how I cursed you but you have made me the most joyful man in all the world that's peter in heaven verse number 19 and for their sakes i sanctify myself restraining yourself from comfort for others sake is love when jesus says he sanctified himself in verse 19 it means he set himself apart he set himself apart from the father and the spirit in heaven and he came to earth he took on a body for their sakes he put aside all of his comfort second corinthians 8 verse 9 says though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor 17 verse 20 neither do i pray for these alone but for them also which will believe on me through your word through their word that's all believers today. He's not only praying for the 11 disciples. He's praying for who? Every single person who will believe. He prayed for Jomo Kubai in Nomatatani, who's about to be baptized. He paid, prayed for Priska in Satwas Piwe, who's just been baptized in Elam. He prayed for Manabunsa in Valdesia, who's been converted. He prayed for Lloyd Mugobi Kamatimbe. He prayed for Filani. He's working not just for the disciples, but for all others. Praying for those who are not yet living is love. Do you pray for your children, for your grandchildren, for your great-grandchildren? Do you pray for those whom you don't know and don't see in Malawi, whom God will save even in an answer to your prayers? Or is your faith too weak to pray constantly for Libya or for Somalia or for Tibet or Nepal Or we hear a lot about Ukraine. Could we even find Ukraine on a map? More importantly, have we ever prayed for Ukraine? Now we think, oh, it's terrible about the war. Do we really think it's terrible? There was a spiritual war that was sending them to hell. Now they're just going a little more quickly, but they're still going to the same place. Did we pray for the Ukraine before? 
Don't, don't pretend that you think it's terrible now. Now there's some gunshots going off. What about before? When the evil one was rampaging that land, did we care at all? Verse 21 that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, joining other to God himself is love. Look at verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I gave them. Oh, oh, it's too much. It's too great. We can't pick this up. It's too much sand for our bucky. It's too many rocks for our lorry. How can we carry this? The glory that I have, I gave to them. Giving the divine infinite glory is real love. This is love. There is no love like this love when God himself gives his own infinite, inexpressible expression of his beauty to his sheep. And if you are one of his sheep, the greatest of all pleasures that you will ever know is to find and experience that divine and infinite glory. And if you don't know that, it will be the cause of your self-cursing and self-loathing and blasphemy for all eternity in hell. If you do not receive the glory that Jesus Christ gives to all his sheep, he explains it here. It's like setting not a carrot before a donkey. It is like setting every kind of pleasure and happiness and wealth and joy and comfort and perfection and beauty and honor before you. And then we look at it and say, mm, no thanks. I think I'll have a braai. Are you insane? Come back tonight. The answer is yes. Verse 24 and we close. Father, I will that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. Setting holy desires on other, others is love. Our time has expired, but I want to draw your minds in conclusion to this. Our Lord Jesus is full of love for his people, full of love. We've neglected it. We've ignored it. We've forgotten how much he loves poor, backward sinners who act like two-year-olds when we should be 30-year-olds. That's what Hebrews 5 says. We should have been much further along, but we're so weak because we haven't studied his word. He is rich with love. Are you doubting and discouraged? I tell you, go to the love of Christ. Do you say, but I don't know if he loves me. Ha, then now you're talking. I'm not sure. How can I know that he really loves me? Then go, cast yourself on him. Throw yourself on him. Or another picture, hide behind him. Hide behind him and you will be saved. When you hide behind him, your soul will be filled with the knowledge that he loves his people and you are born again. That's what it means to be born again. It means to hide behind him such that your mind is filled with he loves me. He knows me. He chose me. He forgave me. And if you can talk like that, we'll take you as a church member. We'll baptize you and we won't baptize any others. Black or white will take you. But if you can't talk like that, if you can't say, I've hidden behind Christ and he saved me from my sins. If you can't talk like that, you need to wait longer. But if you can talk like that, then you know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and give us this love in our soul. Teach us real, true love. Grant us to know what divine holiness is. Make us to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Save sinners today. Convert your people. Awaken them even through a word, even this word. In Jesus' name, amen.